You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is great to see you this morning. Go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. So make sure you um, get that open. You're going to need that in front of you. That's going to be really helpful for you. And for the students that were at Disciple Now this weekend, and we pray that you had a great time. I know that um, I've heard a few reports and it sounded like it was really, really good. So we're thankful for that and that you're here this morning safe and sound. Nobody died. That's always a win with a Disciple Now. Okay, so um, 1 Peter. Um, it, it struck me here recently, I was reading through Second Peter, and so it's three chapters, and it struck me that in three chapters, Peter mentions three times the reason that he's writing. Three times in three chapters, he, he mentions it. And let me just read one of these to you. This is in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, the first verse. Uh, Peter says this, just describing what he's doing in writing First Peter and Second Peter, and this is what he says. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And then he says this, in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So three times in three chapters in second Peter, he's telling us what he's doing. And he says that I'm writing to you as a way of reminding you. And this isn't just a a Peter thing. This is a Paul thing too. If, If you start reading throughout Paul's epistles, you see over and over that he is writing for a reminder. Um, you see it in first Corinthians 15. He says, I, Brothers, I'm writing to you uh, about this, this truth that I first preached to you about the gospel. And I'm reminding you again of that same truth that I'd formerly preached to you. Um, we talked about this a lot when we studied through Ephesians. That through the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, so three of the six chapters, the first three chapters are totally soaked with gospel declarations. P, Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians just reminding the church of Ephesus all that God had done for them and, and to them through the life and work of Jesus. Three chapters reminding them of that. I think one way for you to look at what really the whole Bible is about, but specifically the epistles of the New Testament, is that they are meant to be reminders to you. Okay, so then it kind of begs the question, why is it that they're so obsessed about reminding us of things? Answer, they know something about the human mind, aka that it is a leaky thing, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, you just live around our house for a second and you'll see that. It is a leaky mind. We've keys everywhere, wallets everywhere, bags misplaced. I mean, I think we would all agree with that, that, that we have minds that are like wet cement. An idea pops in, a big thought lands on us, and the next day we can't remember it. And, and so there is an awareness in all the New Testament writers that there has to be a constant recalibrating around and a reminding of what is of most importance. This is what the New Testament is doing primarily for you. It's reminding Christians of what is most important to them. And listen, this is on a personal level. You're prone to forget. And this is on a church-wide corporate level. We are so prone to forget what is most important. It is so easy for churches just like ours to to start accomplishing so many different things. So we're running over here doing that. We're serving over there. We've got all these tasks, this big to-do list, and we're accomplishing all of this stuff. And in light of that, it's so easy to miss the main thing. In the midst of accomplishing a million things to miss the main thing. We are prone to that as a church. We are susceptible to that as a church. And so here's really the angst for the morning is I want to take a morning and let Peter remind you of the main thing of what is most important for us. 
I just want to let him remind you of that. And then these two primary callings that come out of this one main thing. So so one main thing, two primary callings on your life, my life, and our church's life. So with that said, um, 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10. Let me read this again for us. This is Peter. He's reminding you of something here. He, He says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, so one big reminder, two, two sub points, kind of two things that flow out of this one big thing. So, so here's the big reminder. That we as a church, Stonegate, we are a gospel-centered people. Okay, this is the big thing. That, that we are a gospel-centered people. This is who we are. It defines us. Okay, now, so to, to even make sense of what it means to, to say we're a gospel-centered people, we have to first make sure we're clear about what the gospel is. So, so let's start by just clearly defining the gospel. What, what is the gospel? It is that Jesus took on human flesh. He strapped on human flesh and he lived a perfect life in place of your imperfect life. And then he strapped a cross onto that flesh, onto his back. And he was slaughtered on the cross in your place and for your sin. He was buried three days in a tomb, rose from the dead, demonstrating God's power over sin, Satan, and death. The gospel is this great announcement of all that God has accomplished for you in the life and work of Jesus. And in the gospel, there's this beautiful invitation for you to turn from your sin, to run to Jesus and be saved. And then to live the rest of your life in light of all that God has done for you in Jesus. this, This is the gospel. That Jesus lived a perfect life in place of your imperfect life. He died an undeserved death in place of your deserved death. In your place for your sin. This is it. Okay, so, so I want you to see that the gospel is not good advice about how you can reach up to God. The, the gospel is an announcement. It's a declaration of all that God has done through Jesus to reach down to you. That's what the gospel is. It's an announcement of all that God has done to reconcile you to him. Okay, so this is the gospel. Now, now what does it mean to be gospel-centered? Let's work on a kind of a definition of that. Okay, so essentially when we say gospel-centered, it means that now, in light of all that God has done for us, that now defines us. That saturates and soaks everything we are, everything we're about. We would say it this way, the gospel is everything. It is first and it is last and it's everything in between. Um, One of the guys in our network, a pastor, here's how he defined um, what it means to be gospel-centered or what what gospel-centered means. Joe Thorne, he he defines it this way. To be gospel-centered means that the gospel and Jesus himself, and I love his words here. He says, is our greatest hope and boast, our greatest longing and joy. In our most passionate song and message, it means that the gospel is what defines us as Christians, unites us as brothers and sisters, changes us as sinners and saints, and sends us as God's people on mission. When we are gospel-centered, the gospel is exalted above every other good thing in our lives, and it triumphs over every bad thing that sets itself against it. 
This is what it means to be gospel centered. That it actually, like what God has done for you in Jesus, actually defines you. That, that it is your, your greatest hope and your greatest boast is in all that God has done for you. It is this song that you can sing and this message that you can proclaim. That this gospel, it unites us, it sends us, it changes us. That we are soaked in this thing. That, that all that God has done for us in Jesus saturates everything we do, everything we feel, everything we say. That we're saturated by this. Okay, now, now to get this, here's what's got to happen kind of in our church family. We've got to kind of push through a major kind of cultural misconception as it relates to the gospel. And it goes like this major gospel misconception is that the gospel, all that Jesus has done or God has done for us in Jesus, the gospel is just for those who don't know Jesus. Okay, so, so let me just try to clear this up. The gospel is for those who don't know Jesus. If you're here today and there's never been a moment where you have trusted and treasured Jesus, where you've held your life up to him and said, God, I'm all yours. Save me. If if that has never happened, the gospel is your only hope. It is only because Jesus died in your place and for your sin. As we just saying that he actually paid it all. That he actually did that. that. That is the only way you can be reconciled to God. That's the only way. So it is for non-Christians, people who don't know Jesus. But it's also, it's not just for that. It's also for Christians. It's also for you. If you're a believer in here, the gospel is for you. It's not something that, that you um, kind of get you into the door of what it means to be a Christian. And then you graduate from that to kind of get into deeper and, and more advanced things. It is the advanced thing. It is the big thing. Listen to how Tim Keller describes kind of this reality. He says it this way. The gospel is not just the ABC of Christianity. It is the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door and the power through every barrier. So see, it's not that you become a Christian and then you move on to bigger and brighter things. The gospel, all that God has done for us in Jesus is the big thing and it is the bright thing. It means that the gospel is the means that God uses to save us. And it's the means that God uses to actually change us and conform us into the image of Jesus. It means that the gospel is the thing that saves us and sanctifies us. So so if you've got issues with greed, with immorality, with lust, with insecurity, you you just name the list here. It's a gospel issue. And your only hope is the gospel to get measurable victory in it. This is what it means to be gospel-centered. Now, Peter is reminding us of this. He's looking at Christians and he's reminding Christians that this is who you are. Because of the work of Jesus. Look at verse 9. This is who you are. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You actually have access to God. That you are this holy nation because the work of Jesus for you, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin and your rebellion that still remains in you if you're a Christian. He actually sees the perfect reflection of Jesus over you. You're a holy nation. 
that you're a people for God's own possession because of the work of Jesus for us, that we can actually look at God and know that he has adopted us into his family and that we're sons and daughters of God. That He's our father. We, we could actually say, if you're a Christian in the room because of the gospel, you could actually say that God is yours and that you are God's. Right? This is, this is beautiful gospel realities for you if you're a believer. Okay, so Peter's looking at Christians and he's reminding you. The gospel is both for, for you, for unbeliever for you and Christian for you. It's for both. This is what it means to be gospel-centered. Okay, now let me just ask this question. Can you imagine what it would look like for a church to actually begin grasping the gospel through and through? Can you imagine what it would look like if all that God has done for us in Jesus actually begins settling over your heart and you're actually convinced of it? That, that God has given you the approval that you need so you don't have to search for it in a thousand other places? That, that God actually through Jesus is the thing that can satisfy the deepest aches of your soul so you don't have to run for all of these kind of artificial fillings? Can you imagine that if, if we really started to believe that because of the work of Jesus for us, that, that we don't have to be in control, but we can look at God and know that he is a good sovereign God of the universe. And he's also our father and is orchestrating everything for our good. Can you imagine what it would look like if we actually started believing that? If we actually started to believe that the gospel is not just what saves us from the past penalty of our sin. And the gospel is not just some future reality that saves us from the future presence of sin in heaven. But it's actually this present reality that right now in this moment saves you from the power of sin in your life. Can you imagine what it would look like around here? Okay, now I think Peter gives us two indications of some of what it would look like. Okay, two indications. Let me just run through the first one really quickly and I actually want to kind of camp on the second one. The first one, if, if you want to talk about a gospel effect, like when, when we become a gospel centered people, what it produces in a, in a church, this is the first thing, the effect of the gospel first effect goes like this. The gospel moves us to mission. It moves us to mission. Okay. So let me just, first of all, clarify what a missionary is. A missionary is a person who lives with the intentional purpose of pointing others to Jesus. That's what a missionary is. And listen, if you're a Christian, this is an identity that God gives you. When he saves you, he sends you. We talked about this at length a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. But I want you to see in this passage, the link here. He says, okay, so Christian, you are this, you're a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And here's what that leads to. In light of that, what God has done for you in Jesus. Now, this is what you do naturally. It's an overflow of this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you see the link there? It's gospel here. Its effect is mission. The gospel naturally moves us to mission. When we, have a, when we have a heart and we have eyes that can actually see all that God has done for us in Jesus, when that actually becomes excellent to us, we naturally begin proclaiming those excellencies. When Jesus begins looming large in our heart, we actually begin proclaiming that Jesus. This is the idea. And like I said, we, we talked about this at length a few weeks ago, but let me just give you an illustration that highlights the problem. That the problem that, that we have is that many of us do not talk about Jesus, not with Christians and not with people who are not Christians. 
God is not on our lips. Jesus, the gospel is not on our lips. Okay, so let me give an illustration that I think drives right to the heart of why that is. And I've, I've mentioned this before. It's been a while. So if you've heard this, just humor me. When, when I was, I was probably 14 years old and my oldest brother, I was one of three boys. My oldest brother and I went out to get something out of our deep freeze. So we went out of kind of our back door in the garage to the deep freeze. And somewhere in the midst of that, my dad thought it would be a good idea to lock us out. It was a bad idea. All right. So he should. Yeah. Okay. So we go out to the freezer. We get our thing. We're coming back and uh, I, I go to unlock the door and I realize it's locked. And I realize that, wow. My dad just locked me out of the house. And in that moment, me, a 14-year-old punk. That's the only way I could describe it. I looked over to my oldest brother and I said, that son of a... mm." And in that moment, my dad opened the door, (laughs) looked at me, and walked off. And, And here was kind of the revealing thing in that moment... Is, is my lips in that moment revealed, it gave away my heart. Like what I said gave away the fact that my heart was not near my dad. Okay, now I want you to think about this in your life. Because I think for a lot of us, our lips give away the fact that our heart is nowhere near God's. See, when, we, when the gospel is not on our lips... When Jesus is not being talked about, when the gospel is not being talked about to Christian friends, or this isn't just like a non-believer issue. This is in your good friends issue. When when the gospel is not being talked about, and just look at your last week. Like how often was Jesus talked about in your last week? And for most of us, I think it gives away where our heart is. It gives away the fact that our heart is nowhere near God's. We we talked about it two weeks ago in terms of our heart is not besotted with Jesus. See, why are we hesitant and reluctant to talk about Jesus? It's because our heart are not besotted with Jesus. They're not captured by Jesus, monopolized by Jesus. When Jesus looms large in our hearts, Jesus flows freely from our lips. And the reverse is also true. If Jesus does not flow freely from our lips, Jesus is not looming large in our heart. So so let me just reiterate that again. I think that might should lead us to repentance and maybe just praying that God would open the eyes of our heart to see all that God God is for us in Jesus. Do you know what you need more than your next breath? You need to see Jesus clearly. You need that more than your next breath. To have an awe-inspiring, kind of this Isaiah 6 view of who Jesus is. See, when that happens, you naturally begin proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Okay, so so that's one link. That's one gospel effect that moves us to mission. But, But there's another gospel effect here. It does something else to us. The gospel also creates community. It creates community. And this is where I really want to spend the rest of our time together. The gospel also creates community. Okay, now I want you to look at verse 9 again here. And I, want, I just want to draw your attention to a couple of things out of verse 9. From a 30,000 foot level, I want you to see each of these phrases. Okay, so, so it says, first of all, that, that but you. Okay, but, God, but, but you. Okay, so he's looking at you and saying you. Okay, now that you is not you singular. 
That is not, um, but Peter is not saying you individual person on the third row, like three people in. He is saying you plural. That's not a singular you. It's a plural you. He's looking at the church and he is saying you plural. All of y'all. Okay, th- this group, it's that you. Okay, and then he says, okay, so, so you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Okay, now think about the word race for a second. Race is not a singular kind of attribute. You don't have a race if you're one person. You have a race if you're many people. Okay, so, so race is a plural idea. Then priesthood. You don't have a priesthood if you're one priest. If you have one priest, you, you've got one priest, right? You don't have a priesthood. Priesthood is plural. It, it's saying that there is a group of you who are priests. So he's saying that, that God, through the gospel, has made a group of you priests. That you are a priesthood. It's a plural word. Okay, then he gets the, ne- the next one here. A holy nation. One person, this will point out the obvious, one person is not a nation. It takes a group of people to be a nation, right? Okay, we're following. It's a plural idea. Okay, then go to the last one. A people for his own possession. One person is not a people. It takes many persons to be a people. Do you get that? Okay, so I I just want you to see from a 30,000 foot level what's going on here. Peter is saying, here's one thing that the gospel does for you. It creates community. Now, let me say that a different way. He's saying that the gospel actually places you inside of a family. That if God has saved you, if you're one of his, if you're a son or daughter of his, you've also been placed inside of a group of people where there are brothers and sisters around you. You're in this sort of a family sort of environment. Okay, so are we getting this? Gospel effect is community. That God transports you and kind of plants you inside of a group of people that he would look at and call family. And maybe to press that one step further... This is why the dominant imagery in the New Testament for the church is family. That when you look around in this room, that this would be God's words to you. I have made you these things, not singular you. I placed you inside of this church family. Okay, now now I want to give you this warning. When it comes to living out what God has practically made us. So if you're a part of Stonegate, he has made you specifically family with this group of people. He's made you that. But for you to practically grow into what God has already made you, here's the warning. That is very, very difficult. Very difficult. If you've got family, if you've got, I grew up in one of three brothers. If if you've got brothers, here's what you know. You were born into that family, right? So I didn't choose my brothers, my brothers that I was born into that, but it took a long time for us to grow into the family that I was born into. It took me wanting to kill them on multiple occasions and them wanting to kill me on multiple occasions. Would we all agree with that? If you've got brothers and sisters, I think you would. So, so growing into what God has positionally made you family is very difficult. Now, I, I want you to look at this graph on the screen and I want to outline for you the pathway to family. Okay, so if you look on the screen, this is up, up top right is family mountain. This is where we all want to go. This is us actually growing into what God has already made us. Family Mountain. Family Mountain is where you would look at one person in this room and you would say, you know what? It's not just like I have a casual acquaintance with them. I would die for them. Okay, this is Family Mountain. Family Mountain is what God has positionally already made us, but what we are trying to practically as a church family grow into. Okay, now here's the problem. 
There is only one pathway to Family Mountain. It's only got one path. There is only one route to get up to Family Mountain. So let me just kind of walk you through the path here. It starts with this word interesting. This is the step one out of the gate. This is how relationships start. So when you look across the room, you see somebody and you think, wow, kind of interesting. It kind of piqued my curiosity a little bit. And this is like friendship. So this is me seeing Sam Wrinkle and thinking, you know what? There's something about him kind of, I mean, he's kind of a tennis player. He's a little bit weird. He's all that. my, My curiosity is piqued. Okay. And then we move to the next stage and that's where we, we look at somebody and we think they're cool. So we go to interesting to cool. Now cool is where we would look at them and we would take like one more step because they're interesting. And now we get to kind of the cool mode. So, so now we look at them and think, um, yeah, there's something there, but there's some wisdom there. There's some experience there. There's some insight there that, that I could actually see myself hanging with that guy, or that, that person. I could actually see that working out into a friendship. So, so now we're to cool mode. Okay, now from cool, so we're interesting to cool, and now we go to Awesome Hill. I don't know if you've ever been to Awesome Hill with someone. Awesome Hill is where everything about that person is awesome. So Awesome Hill is when I look at them, they look at me, and all we see is the good stuff about them. All we see is that person has got some attributes and some things like they bring some stuff to the table that I want to be around. This is awesome hill. Okay. Now I, I recently kind of experienced all three of those. Um, this last week I was at this micro conference in Memphis and I was sitting next to, I just happened. My seat was next to the CEO of honey baked hams. You ever had one of those? I'm sit- Yeah, it was awesome. All right. I'm sitting next to the CEO of honey baked ham. And I just right off the cuff, I'm telling he was interesting right off the cuff. I could see myself taking one more step toward this guy. We instantly got to the interesting category. I'm looking at him. I'm seeing experiences. I'm seeing a leadership guru here. I'm seeing all that stuff that I'm thinking. I want to be at that table where this guy is. And then we got to awesome hill. Now, awesome hill is where if, if you're asking me about this guy, I'm singing his praises. And if you were to ask this guy, hey, what'd you think about Rodney? He'd be singing my praises right now too. We're at Awesome Hill. He's awesome. I'm awesome. We're all awesome at Awesome Hill. Okay, now here is the problem with Awesome Hill. Now track this. The scene at Awesome Hill is all superficial. I don't know the CEO from Honey Baked Ham. I sat with him for a day and a half. I know he lives in Atlanta. That's what I know about him. But I don't know him. We're totally superficial. He knows I'm a pastor. I know he's a CEO. I don't know his kids. I don't know his family. I don't know all the baggage he brings to the table. I don't know him. We are totally on a superficial level. Okay, now listen to this. Every awesome hill relationship, guess what? The scene is superficial. Every one of them. And can I just tell you that nine out of 10 relationships at churches are on the superficial scene of awesome hill, totally superficial. So so this is how this, this next phase kind of works. There is going to be a time when you bust through the superficial piece with people. If you walk through long enough with them and you fall off the cliff to cruddy Valley, you ever been there with somebody? Cruddy Valley is not a good place to be. Cruddy Valley is when, okay, 
Cruddy Valley is essentially a sobering moment. Cruddy Valley is the moment where you realize, wow, they don't just bring good things to the table, but they've got like nine sets of selfish bags they bring to the table. Like this person is not just a good guy, the CEO of Honey Baked Ham. This guy is a self-promoting, self-seeking, self-serving jerk. And he cares a lot more about himself than anyone else. See, this is what we start to realize when we fall off the cliff of Awesome Hill and we find ourselves in Cruddy Valley. We start to see this person isn't that good. They're not really that interesting. They're not really that cool. They're not really that awesome. They're really a jerk. Are, are you seeing this? And this is where nine out of 10 relationships kind of falter in church. world. This is what happens for most of us in the room. Let's just be gut level honest here. This is why community, us actually living as a family and growing the family mountain. This is why it's so difficult for us, because here's what happens. As soon as you get to Awesome Hill, you think, man, I will spend the rest of my life with this group of people, this person I'm in. And we fall off the cliff, the Cruddy Valley. You know what you do? You look at them and think, you know what? I'm not going down to Cruddy Valley with them. I'm out. I'm disengaged. I'm pulling back. And for some of you, pulling back looks like a, an initial just shock factor. I'm out of here. But for others, it just looks like the slow bleed. Like you don't show up to home group next week. And then you can maybe kind of stick in for a couple of more weeks. And then the next month you miss a couple of times. By the third month, no one sees you. It's just a slow bleed, a subtle disengagement. But, but we're looking at people and we're saying, I am not going to Cruddy Valley with you. Sorry. Not, not happening. And so we disengage from the people who we've just fallen into Cruddy Valley with, and we find another person. And look around you. See, we're big enough as a church now where you can do this all within Stonegate. So now you look across the room and find another interesting person. It goes to Cool, then it goes to Awesome Hill, and then we fall off the cliff again. And now we disengage from that group of people, and we look across the room and find another group of people. And they're interesting and cool, and we get to Awesome Hill, and we fall off the cliff. And we keep bouncing around until finally we run out of people here, and then we go to the church now. Down the road. And then we find a person there that's interesting, cool, awesome hill, and then we disengage as soon as we fall off the cliff there. This is why 99 out of 100 relationships in this room right now are superficial. Awesome hill. It's because we're not willing to walk through Cruddy Valley with people. But see, for some of us in the room, here's what's happened for you. When, when you kind of get into a relationship with a person, a friendship with a person, you already expect at some point we are going to fall off the cliff. We are going to Cruddy Valley. I know that they are a self-seeking, self-promoting, self-serving jerk. And I'm aware enough of myself that I know I am too. And so it's just a matter of time before they drag me off the cliff or I drag them off the cliff. It's just a matter of time before it happens. So, so we're prepared for that fall. And when we actually make the fall, we start looking around and we think, I'm not abandoning them in Cruddy Valley, but I'm going to be patient with them, long suffering with them. I'm going to speak the truth in love to them here. I'm going to address their sin with the gospel, allow them to address my sin with the gospel. And here's what happens after a long, patient, slow kind of grind through Cruddy Valley. We start the slow climb up Family Mountain. Okay, but see this. I want you to picture yourself at the front of the path here. You're at interesting. And you're looking straight down the path. See, it looks like if you're at the front and you're just looking down it, it looks like Family Mountain is just one small step from Awesome Hill, doesn't it? It's just one little step over to, to, to Family Mountain. The problem is it's not one small step. It's a fall off of a cliff, 
trudging through Cruddy Valley and a grueling climb up a mountain. That is the only way you can ever get to Family Mountain with a group of people. Okay, now you're seeing the implications of this. That means that if you want a people who are flawless, if you want a people who um, are never going to hurt you, abuse you, ridicule you, kick you while you're down, stab you in the back, if you want a people like that, you're never going to get to Family Mountain. The only way you can get to Family Mountain is to endure that. And, and guess what? You're going to be dishing that out too, you know? See, the only way you will ever get to Family Mountain is to fall off the cliff of Awesome Hill, through the valley, and then up the mountain. That is the only way there. Okay, now in light of that, I want to ask you four questions that deal with this communal aspect, this family aspect. And I think I, I want it to be a gauge for you, for you just to be able to, to determine this morning, where am I here? Am I like living on Awesome Hill? Am I the person that as soon as we get to Cruddy Valley, I pull back to interesting, cool, you know, awesome hill again? Like, where am I in the trudge up family mountain? Okay, so four questions here that, that I hope just serve as kind of a barometer for us. Here's question number one. Number one. Is your community, so this is family for you. This is the people that you're living life with here at Stonegate. Is your community involved in your big decisions? I think this is just a good barometer for you, just to get a kind of a, a framework for where you sit here. Is your community involved in your big decisions? So you've got a big decision coming up. Who, who all is in the decision-making process for you? Is this just a you thing, maybe a your wife thing? Or, or do you spread this out and invite people in on those decisions? See, when we're starting to live as family together, we start inviting people to speak into decisions. Here's the problem a lot of us have. A lot of us in the room trust ourselves way too much and trust those around us way too little. We trust ourselves way too much and we trust others way too little. I, I think a lot of us live with this misconception that um, needing help is a sign of immaturity. I think a lot of us live with that misconception when in reality, expressing the fact that we need help is actually a sign of maturity. Inviting people in is actually a sign of maturity. So I'll just give you one illustration of how this has played out in our life. Laura and I recently had our third kid. And so um, that meant that we had to consider getting another vehicle, something with like maybe a third row, something big enough to haul around all of our family now. And so, right. And so, Okay, now I, I want you to just hear how that decision went down for us. Because listen, if I go into debt and I can't pay for it, who do you think that affects? That affects family, doesn't it? That affects all those around us. It's not just the Laura and I thing. That affects everyone that has looked at me and said, I am in on the trudge up to family mountain. It affects everyone that says that. And so this is what happened for us as we tried to make this decision on what sort of a car we were going to buy, how much we were going to spend, all of that. As we opened that up in this, in the context of our home group, in the context of a few other trusted guys, and we invited them in on that. Will you please pray for us as we try to make this decision? Will you speak into this? You can ask questions about this. Why do we need this? Why do we want this? You can ask any and all of those questions to help us make a great decision. Because here's what I believe about Laura and I. We do not trust ourselves to make the best decisions by ourselves. We do not trust ourselves to make the best decisions by ourselves. So I, I just ask yourself the question. When you're making big decisions, do you invite people in on that? 
family in on that. And I hope that there's a growing awareness that you are doing that. Okay, here's question number two. Question number two goes like this. Do people speak the truth in love to you? Do people speak the truth in love to you? This is a great measurement for for how well you're walking up Family Mountain. Because I I just, I hope this doesn't burst a bubble. But I, I hope you know that you actually have sinful tendencies and sinful patterns and unbelief in you. Do you know that? So that means that you're going to fall off into Cruddy Valley eventually with people and that you're going to need people to speak the truth and love to you. You're going to need that. Like you, not the person beside you, not your wife, not your husband. You are going to need people to speak the truth and love to you. This is an Ephesians 4.15 thing. People speaking the truth in love. You're going to need that. I'm going to need that. We're all going to need that. And so what if, um, when you think about how people around you love you, what if you change the barometer for how you kind of gauge that? So I think this is how most of us gauge how much people love us by. Okay, I think it goes like this. How well do they make me feel about me? That's most of our gauge for, do those around us actually love us? And and instead of that, what if your gauge was this? How willing are people around me to actually speak the truth and love to me when I need it? Like, what if that was your barometer for how loved you are? What what if that was your barometer? And you're to look around right now and your kind of group of friends. How loved would you be if that was your barometer? This is a Proverbs 27, 6 thing where it's faithful are the wounds of friends, right? But deceitful are the kisses of enemies. That that we actually need good friends who love us enough to speak the truth and love to us. Have difficult conversations. Like have a sit down. I want to look you in the eyes. I just saw something wrong here that probably needs to be addressed. Those sort of conversations. I'm actually praying that, that we as a church within our home groups, within our kind of community here, we would actually be having more of the conversations that happened in one of our home groups a couple of months ago. And I want to walk you through one of these in hopes of actually encouraging you with it. This is going to be crazy though. So get ready. So, um, we love, I love it when, when we get phone calls and, uh, from a home group leader and they are agonizing in the depths of cruddy Valley with people around them in a strange way. We actually love that. So we got one of those calls here about two months ago and uh, one of the home group leaders, he, he was seeing a persistent kind of, kind of a level of, of unbelief and idolatry and sinful kind of tendencies and habits in one of the guys in his groups. So he has that conversation where, where he, he confronts that, speaks the truth in love. And listen, it was done in love. It was truth wrapped in a whole bunch of, I care for you enough to have this conversation with you. And I want to read you the text message he got back. Here it goes. Just spoke the truth in love. This came back. That email was, was funny. It made us laugh. We'd already decided that the home group was a waste of time and that we were moving on. If you need to speak with me again, you can be a big boy and talk to me in person. They're in Cruddy Valley right now. <laughs> this is Cruddy Valley. When you get that text back after that conversation... You're in Cruddy Valley. And you know what? I actually love it that they were in Cruddy Valley. It was, it was a great thing. Okay, now, now this is how it goes from there. Get a call back from the home group leader. He is agonizing. His stu- he just left for vacation. He is in knots about this thing. He gets a voicemail from this guy later that night. 
And he's like, dear God, do I have to check that voicemail right now? Please, I'm on vacation. Surely I don't. So he ends up checking the voicemail. And to sum up the voicemail, it sounded something like this. I am so sorry for that text message. Um, Can we actually just pretend that never happened? I actually agree with what you wrote. And when you get back into town, can we meet up and have coffee and talk through it? And you know what the ironic thing, what probably my favorite part of the story is, is how um, that little transformation between that text message and that voicemail happened. Um, after he gets the, the kind of the letter from, from the home group leader, he tosses it over to his wife and he storms out and his wife we, reads it. And she finishes reading it and says, and like, I, I think he's on to something here. That's, that's what you call a great wife, by the way, isn't it? That she would actually have the fortitude to say, you know what? I think he's on to something. I think he's actually right in some of this. See, this is what we're going for. People who actually speak the truth in love, that you will have people around you that love you enough to have those sort of conversations. So, so do you right now? See, if you don't, you're on awesome hill and you're on the scene of superficial relationships. So you're not going to Family Mountain if you're staying there. So, so barometer number two, do you have people who are speaking the truth in love to you? Here's number three. Do you have unplanned interaction with your church family? Unplanned interaction. See, growing as a family together means that you have to figure out ways to actually connect your lives to one another. It means that you actually have to figure out ways to live life with people. It means that you actually have to have like more connection than just church with people. Okay, so so let me kind of um, lay out the problem that I think a lot of us have when it comes to actually growing up and climbing up Family Mountain with one another. I'll illustrate it with a a couple of pictures here. If you can picture your life like this, okay, this is life for us. It's divided into four big categories. We've got home on the top left. We've got work on the top right. On the bottom left, we've got our play and kind of recreation. On the bottom right, we've got church. This is what most of our relationships with one another in the room looks like. Okay, next slide. It looks like this. We have this one little quadrant of our life that actually overlaps. So so we've just got this church thing. It's a planned interaction. We've just got church where we see each other. So we walk in on a Sunday morning. How are you doing? How was your week? It was great. Man, I'm so glad your week was good. We'll see you next week. That's That's our relationships with people. Maybe we'll see you at home group. Maybe. Okay, so we've got one quadrant of our life that overlaps. Okay, now listen, this is a big statement here. If you have to plan interaction with people, you're not living in community with people. If you have to plan all of your interaction with them, you're not on the the journey up Family Mountain. You're still on Awesome Hill. Okay, it, it requires you to spend time with people. See, our lives, and, and this is going to be really difficult for a lot of us in the room. Our lives have to look more like this third picture. Rather than overlapping in just this one little quadrant, we're going to have to figure out ways to actually get our la- lives overlapping in various quadrants. See, our lives are actually going to have to intersect with one another in more than I see you on Sunday morning and maybe home group. That we're going to have to to figure out ways to to intersect family and work and and play and recreation for all these things to begin revolving around the people we're living with. And listen, I know, I I think this is the pushback for a lot of us in the room is it sounds like this. How in the heck, how am I going to do that? Have you seen my schedule? Have you seen that? 
And the answer is it probably looks just like mine and everyone else's in the room. And so I, I think it forces us to, to answer some questions here. And listen, when you ask the question, how can I do that in a general broad statement, it's impossible for me to address that corporately. But I, just two things, I think from a 30,000 foot level, I think it means for all of us that we're going to have to figure out ways to live smarter than we are now. Everyone in the room eats three meals a day, roughly. So you can eat that with people just like you can eat that by yourself. So we're going to have to figure out how to do things together. If we're going to recreate, we probably need to figure out ways to do that with people and not by ourselves. Okay, so so one issue is a smarter issue. And the other issue is, is a simplifying issue. I think a lot of us measure productivity by how busy we are. And can I just say that you can run on the treadmill for the rest of your life and not be productive, never go anywhere. I think a lot of us need to take a step back and ask the question, not just am I doing things, but am I doing the right things? Am I doing things that actually help get me up family mountain? And if I'm not, I need to figure out how to live smarter than I am now, how to simplify some things, cut these things out, prioritize these things so that I can actually live with a group of people, overlapping lives with a group of people here. So thirdly, do you have unplanned interaction with people? And here's the fourth one, and we'll kind of finish it up with this. Fourth one. Are you 100% known? Are you 100% known? If you want probably the best gauge of where you are in kind of the journey up Family Mountain, this is it. How known are you? Are you 100% known? And we say this periodically around here now, that if you came in the building today and you were 99% known and 1% unknown, do you know what that makes you? Unknown. If you're 99% known and 1% of your life you keep tucked into the closet... No one can see it. 1% unknown. You are unknown. See, and this cuts right to the core of our problems in all churches. Everyone's pretending. Everyone's wearing a mask. See, if you've got 1% of you that is not known in here this morning, you know what that makes you? A pretender. You're presenting that this is who you are when you know deep down you're not that. You're not that. But you're presenting that you are that. See, if you are 1% unknown, if there's 1% of you that says, I can't let people know this, then you're pretending. To to maybe give you some imagery of this, have you ever um, invited someone over at 6.30 for dinner and you look up at 6 o'clock and you realize, wow, our house is a disaster. (laughs) And so you do kind of the panic pickup thing. So you first you look at all the big stuff and you get all the big stuff and you throw them to the back room. And then you look around, you've got all the small stuff and you get all the small stuff into one big bag. You throw it in the coat closet, get your body weight behind it and close the door. <laughs> Praying that no one's going to look in the closet. How, this is so our lives, isn't it? When we look around like a group of people like this, we're thinking this about our lives. What are the big things that I cannot let people see that I need to throw in the back bedroom? We don't deal with them. We don't apply the gospel to them. We throw them in the back bedroom and close the door. And then we look at all the small stuff that might kind of give us problems with people. We load all those up, put them in a bag, not, not applying the gospel to them and dealing with them. Load them all in a bag, stick them in the closet, praying that no one asks about it, that no one sees it, that we can kind of keep it hidden and cleaned up back there. Is that not our life? Now, here's the problem when you pretend. 
it makes it impossible for people to actually love you. Because they don't know you. And it makes it impossible for you to actually feel loved by people because you know that the version that they are loving is not the real you. It's the one you're pretending to be. So see, what pretending does is it hollows out your heart. That's the end game of pretending. That you've got to be 100% known. Here's the pushback that we hear from this all the time. Are you really saying that people have to know everything about me? Like everything everything. Are you really saying that? And this is my question back or statement back. Well, it depends on, on what church is to you. Do you want to live on awesome Hill or on family mountain? And if church is a family, then yeah, they've got to know everything about you, all your baggage, all of your stuff that you want to keep in the closet, all the stuff that you're ashamed of, all the stuff that you really don't like for people to see. They've got to know all of that. See, you can't get up family mountain without that. And maybe this would be a good question to ask back. I, got, I love to ask back when, when that pushback comes. Of, you mean all of me? They got it? Yeah, all of you. If you want family, all of you. But here, here's maybe a bigger question. Why is it so terrifying for you for people to know all of you? Why is that so scary? Um, three, I guess it was about a month ago now. Um, I, I stood up on a Sunday morning and told you about this. That Laura wrote me a letter about a month ago that um, um, outlined... A lot of my failures, selfishness, self-centeredness in our marriage. And she was gracious in doing it. It was truth wrapped in a lot of love. And I, I told you about that on a Sunday morning. I've invited our home group into that. They've all seen that. I've invited our staff into that to speak into it. They all have seen that. A few other trusted guys to speak into that, to know that. They've read Laura's letter to me. And it's painful to read. Painful. And do you know why I can do that? Because the, there is more and more and more a piece of me that does not care about what you think or what our home group thinks or what our staff thinks about me. And you know the only way that can happen is for the gospel to keep growing deeper and deeper and deeper in your heart. This is what, when I, when I stood up the morning, I, I presented that to y'all and, and kind of got y'all in the loop on that. Here's what I had to remind myself of that morning. The gospel actually says the worst thing that can be said about me. It actually says the worst thing that can be said about me. Like Jesus having to die for me says this. I am so bad and so sinful that Jesus actually had to be slaughtered on a cross for it. And you know, when you start to grasp that, you know what it loosens you up to do? It loosens you up to put all of these kind of things that you're going through right now on the table without fear knowing that they're not the worst thing that could be said about you. Do you see that? When you start to believe that the worst thing that could be said about you has been said about you on the cross, it frees you up to say a lot of really terrible things about yourself and to invite people into knowing the terrible things about yourself, the 1% that you'd really like to keep hidden. That's the only way you're going to get there, though, is for us to grow in gospel centrality, to grasp the gospel through and through. It was funny. I heard a guy say the other day, and I believe this, by the way, that if you want to know what would create revival in the church, in our church, Stonegate Church, is if we tattooed your worst three current sins on your forehead. That like the the person in front of you would be running for the door, right? Just like when you turn around and see the person behind you, you'd be running for the door. 
It'd be really scary for a lot of us in the room, but you know what it would do? Shatter all pretense and all pretending in here. It would actually make us start believing that the worst thing that could be said about us has been said about us already. I'm going to close with this. Um, the last two months, um, and by the way, I'm going to share this, but I want you to know on the front end, our home group is dysfunctional in a thousand different ways. So I just want you to know that from the get-go. So I don't want to glamorize our home group because we're still growing up Family Mountain right now. But in the last two months, God has gifted us with some really special things that has happened. We have deepened in the area of family more in the last two months than we have in the previous two years of, of living with one another. And here's how that happened. In early January, we met with just the guys. We're at my house. And two of our guys threw out major areas of sin, shameful areas of sin for them. That they were willing to put that on the table for everyone in the group to see. And as a group, we got to speak the gospel into that. We got to remind them of all that Jesus is for them in the middle of that. And that was kind of our first step to the bottom, kind of just falling out of, of our home group. And then at the end of that month, I let everyone in our home group read the letter that Laura wrote to me. Totally shattered any pretending. I mean, totally opened up the, the, the door for saying, yeah, my wife could probably say the same thing about me right now. I mean, depth just grew exponentially in that moment. Um, over the last couple of weeks, we've had a couple re-engage into our home group. And I got their permission to just share this with you, but they re-engage in our home group. And here's how the re-engagement really began. Um, about three Wednesday nights ago, um, the wife found out that her husband was in the middle of an inappropriate relationship. She comes to our home group. She is willing to throw all of that out on the table. And our, man, our ladies, I was so proud of them just listening to the story and all that. They got to totally minister to a lady in just absolute brokenness. Just, I mean, I'm talking depth, just exponentially grows. The, the next week, the guy gets to come to the home group. Um, we all meet together and we're meeting and praying just as our guys together. And, and first thing, I, I just basically open up the question, what do we need to be praying for? He's willing to throw all of it out on the table. God's gotten him to a point of good repentance in it, or at least the initial stages of it. And in that moment of, of a guy just sharing all of his worst sin, throwing it out on the table, 100% known. Man, in our home group, it's just created this environment that wasn't there three months ago. See, this is the byproduct. And when we start, when we're willing to, to kind of go down into cruddy valley and start climbing up family mountain, when you're willing in a home group, when, when prayer time comes up, to, to not say, well, I've got uh, this, my third cousin who broke his pinky and we need to pray for him. When you're willing to get out, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but when you're willing to move out of that and you're willing to say this, I have got this area of sick sin in me that needs to be dealt with. And you're willing to go there. Here's what you're going to see in your home group. Depth explode for you. And here's what we're going to get to see on a corporate church level. Depth explode for us as we realize that, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, this holy nation. Like we're this family. God has made us through the gospel a family and he has sent us on this family mission of proclaiming his excellencies, him calling us out of darkness and into light and life to the world. Amen. Let's pray together.
I want to give you just a second to sit kind of under that and for the Spirit to press in whatever needs to stay for you today and to wipe away those things that, that don't need to stick. That we are a gospel-centered people. Like when we, when we think about what success looks like around here, can I just tell you that it doesn't look like um, noses and numbers? It doesn't look like that. What success looks like is are we a gospel-centered people? Are we a people saturated and soaked with and grasping how the gospel applies to every area of our life? Are, are we that group of people? And is that gospel moving us to mission? Is that gospel moving us up Family Mountain? Is that happening? And, and so um, let's take that out of a corporate sense and let's just allow you. I, you are the church, right? I mean, this is Stonegate is you. It's us. And so we're never going to be corporately what you're not personally. And so, so maybe we can apply this just to you personally. If we, we're going to say your life, are we growing and becoming a gospel saturated people? You personally. Has the gospel moved you to mission where, where on your lips and in your life, you're demonstrating and declaring the excellencies of Christ. And community, is it moving you to, to community, to good family, where you're living life with one another, where, where you're actually known and you actually know people here? 100% known. So, so if we're just looking at your life, how are, what's the health of our church look like? I mean, we're praying that God would really give us great depth in all those areas. He would move us forward in all of those areas. And if you are new to our church family and uh, maybe you have never um, stepped across the line of faith, never trusted and treasured Jesus, man, I just want to end by making this so clear for you. That God is so willing to adopt you into his family, to make you a brother and sister of those in this room. He is so willing to make you a part of this holy nation, this royal priesthood, this people for his own possession. He is so willing and so ready to save. And so if that's never happened, this is what it means to trust Jesus or to put your faith in Jesus. It means that to hold up your life and say to God, I love you and I trust you to apply the work of Jesus for me to my sin. I trust you because of the work of Jesus to save me. So God, here I am, take me. And in that moment, the Bible says that you, you go from darkness to light, from death to life, that the God saves you. So if that's never happened, I pray that this would be your moment. This would be that moment for you. So, so God, I pray for our church family. God, I pray that uh, you would sink the gospel deep, press it deep into our bones. God, may we live it. May we eat it. May we breathe it. May we be soaked in it. And, and God, I pray that, that we would become a missionary people, neighborhoods, workplaces, a people on your mission. And God, that we would actually be a family on your mission. And, and so God, I pray that, that maybe right now you would rain down appropriate conviction on us. That you would give us a want and a desire to make it to Family Mountain. 
You'd give us a hope for that. And God, that you would give us the grace to get there. So God, it's in your good name that we ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.